I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Between Germany and Belgium. Belgium, they put everything in your Orange peels, brown sugar, um, you name it. It's a rainy Sunday afternoon. I'm with Aaron. We're drinking beer and looking at art. I've signed us both up for a class on beer and art history at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education, just outside of Boston. Because of all the things Erin has tried in her attempts to meet a guy, taking a class is not one of them. We're in a small group, seated around a large table in a space that kind of looks like an elementary school art classroom. The teacher, Chris, is a lawyer with a passion for beer and art, Chris brought a cooler full of fancy-looking bottles and set out rows of tasting glasses on the table. Now, about those men we came to find. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. If you listened to the last episode, you know that Erin recently lost her job We hooked her up with another podcast called The Science of Happiness, where she talked about being more compassionate with herself. Dating-wise, she'd had one really good date with a guy we've been calling Art Dad, but nothing else with him was immediately planned. So we decided to sign up for some kind of class. Erin picked Beer and Art. Because this is something I tell people a lot. If you're feeling stagnant in the dating world, try signing up for something new. I mean, you never know who you're going to meet. There's quite a spread at this class. We try a sweet mead, a dark ale brewed by Dutch monks, a pills from Germany. There's even some pickled herring. I have to admit, I don't even like beer that much, but the class is really fascinating. As we drink the beers, the teacher basically shows us paintings from over centuries, all of which show people drinking beer in art. Aaron and I are enjoying ourselves, but we're not enjoying a smorgasbord of single men because there aren't any. The other people in the class seem lovely, but most of them are in couples and much older. In short, we have struck out. We're here for the beer. I'm enjoying the art a lot, too, because I don't think... I mean, I've seen a lot of still lifes in my life. I've drawn a bunch of still lifes in my younger years. And I didn't realize how heavily beer factored into still the, the uh, art world and the world of still lifes. This has not been a bad way to spend a Sunday afternoon. And this is all stuff Aaron would enjoy anyway. Plus, we've made some new friends. Because I've never taken a class to meet somebody. This is our first foray. So at first I was like, oh, God, I've I've led us down the wrong path. But then I was like, well, I'm going to see what she has to tell me. And I'm going to just enjoy the taste of the beer. And then I feel like that could be something that could be brought to the next date, possibly, if that ever happens, or the next class. 
This seems like the right attitude to me. Live in the present. Treat everything as an experience you can learn from and see where it leads you. Living in the present is what today's episode is all about. Because sometimes there are flickers of attraction, instant crushes, and appealing maybes. And then later, of course, we're bummed about those missed opportunities. We obsess over what could have been. I know this because I've done it. Like a lot. You've heard me say that I don't really meet people. But there are actually a lot of men I have had a moment with or found attractive. But every time, I've chosen to do absolutely nothing. Like, I remember the hot guy at my local YMCA in 2003. I had a major crush on him, but I never talked to him because I convinced myself he would never. Or there was that longtime friend who maybe could have been more if only I'd said something. Just recently, there was this cute stranger in the airport security line who made a joke to me about traveling together. My flirty response? I said no, firmly, and then turned my back. And then, probably the worst one of all, Matt Dorfman. Matt Dorfman was an illustration major who was in one of my film classes at Syracuse. He knew my friend Aileen, so we did have one mutual connection, and it totally would have been normal for me to talk to him, maybe even ask him out. But I was so into him and had such a crush that instead of just talking to him like an actual human, I would go to this film class we had together, and I would sit behind him, like directly behind him and maybe one seat to the left. And then I would do this creepy thing where I would look over his shoulder to see what he was drawing. Sometimes when I was at my absolute creepiest and most smitten, I would actually look over his shoulder to see what he was drawing, and then I would draw pictures of him drawing. I was the worst. Anyway, in the years after, I kind of kicked myself because I was like, why didn't I just talk to Matt Dorfman? I mean, he wasn't like Chris Hemsworth or anything. He wasn't like intimidating. As far as I knew, he was totally nice. But I just didn't seize the moment because I came up with all of these excuses. The irony is, if I were with Aaron and some opportunity presented itself, I'd be like, you have to pursue this right now. So why haven't I? I called up Wednesday Martin to talk about this. Wednesday is a cultural critic and author. She's written books about human behavior and why we act the way we do with friends, partners, and family. I wanted to ask her why a person might notice someone or feel a spark and then do nothing about it. She sees all of this through a feminist lens. I wonder if you can speak to the idea of, you know, when you see somebody and you just get that feeling and knowing whether it's worth or acceptable, um, you know, to take the risk and act on it. Because sometimes every now and then, whether it's on a subway or in the world, there's that sort of like noticing that you, you can have with someone. And, you know, how do you make choices in a moment? Ooh, the feeling. Okay, first, I mean, I think the first most important thing is to honor the feeling, right, when you are attracted to someone and to really enjoy it. It feels good to be attracted to someone, and it's pleasurable, and I hope that women um, would enjoy that and indulge in it. Women are so often taught, oh, you're supposed to be attractive. We're supposed to just kind of like passively sit there and draw the attraction of other people to us, and that limits us from the really um, great feeling that it can be to feel a pull of attraction to somebody else. We also talk more broadly about what keeps any of us from jumping at opportunities for romance. We agree that technology does not always help. 
tech and social media have diminished our interpersonal skills. If I want a salad at Panera, I can just order it from my phone and grab it off the shelf. I don't actually have to talk to any other human. It's convenient, for sure, but it's not a great exercise in human interaction. Wednesday uses the analogy of a campfire. One of the things that I like to say about social media and texting and emailing, it feels like an efficient way to be at a campfire, right? Campfires always played this role where we gathered around and they gave us warmth and we connected with people. But what I like to say about it is when you get to the campfire, you see that there are no real people there and that the campfire is not giving off any warmth. So a lot of times what social media and tech are doing is they're hooking into that part of our brain that really craves and needs and thrives from connection, but they're not giving us the connection. And that's why I use the analogy of the campfire that's not throwing off any heat. The more we gather around these artificial campfires, Wednesday says, the less equipped we become to interact with people in real life. That means we might not notice the opportunity for magic with another person. And even if we do notice it, we might not know what to do with it. We can lose these skills, and it's sort of like a muscle, and, and we, need, we need to use them. And that's why I encourage people who are constantly sort of living online. It'll make you feel better, and it'll make you healthier if you're actually interacting with people in real life. When I tell Wednesday about my own history of not acting on things, she's kind and understanding, but she's also unequivocal in her advice for anyone in the same position today. If you have a crush, um, you only get one life. Try it. Just try telling the person. Again, what's the worst thing? You know, they'll say, sorry, I don't reciprocate those feelings. And then you'll see that you can handle that. <laughs> Take that risk and reach out and show it. Taking a risk, reaching out, showing it. That's what this next story is all about. Georgie is a British photojournalist. She lives on a barge in Reading, west of London. A few years back, Georgie was newly single, having recently come out of a serious relationship. Yeah, I was having a relatively good time. I was enjoying myself. I was in London. I was socialising, but nothing kind of major. I was just kind of bopping around like a youngish 20-year-old in London. Mid-twenties, I guess. And you were enjoying single life? Uh, yeah, yeah. At the time, I'd kind of, I was just, I think I was maybe just re-finding myself and um, kind of trying to re-ground myself once you've come out of a relationship and just um, getting to to know myself a bit better and things like that and kind of take control of life. At this point, Georgie's in a phase where she likes to approach people at bars she doesn't know. And she's pretty brazen about it. Just generally, I quite like the idea of of walking up to somebody and telling them what I thought, but with no ulterior motive. Like, I wasn't out to try and um, date them or hook up or anything like that. But I would find myself just sort of sitting in watching people and kind of just seeing, wow, God, they're stunning. And so I'd just go up and it would be quite entertaining because i just say, hi, my name's George. I just wanted to say I think you're quite stunning. Um, and, you know, hope you have a good night. And i just walk off and people would be shocked. It's like a brave chicken. Mm. 
none of these interactions lead to anything long-term. For the most part, Georgie's just spending a lot of time on work and dating only casually. One night, she's up late working. So I was um, retouching at about 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, which meant that obviously I was on Facebook because I didn't want to be working. A YouTube video pops up in her feed. It's of a woman in Boston named Britt. She's performing a cover of Beyonce's All the Single Ladies with a guitar, in sweats, in an attic. Georgie sees it and feels that same impulse she gets in the bars. I watched it and I just, I have to say, I instantly thought, wow, um, I was going through one of those moments. Gosh, this, you know, I really want to let this person know how amazing I think she is. The video played and I think it's very dangerous to say, was it love at first sight or something? There was something really, really strong and very appealing about this woman. I guess I was already painting a picture of what kind of person she was. I felt like I saw a very kind, gentle human being who was very talented and beautiful all at the same time. And I thought, wow, this is exceptional. At first, Georgie does nothing. She'd only stumbled across the video because of a mutual connection with Brit. That connection happened to be the sister of Georgie's own ex. Totally tangled. So Georgie's like, maybe I should just leave it alone. But within an hour, she realizes she actually doesn't care. So she sends Brit a short message complimenting the video, figuring, what the hell, she's never going to see this person in real life anyway. Georgie kind of revels in this daydream. Then Brit writes back. Their correspondence grows. After a bunch of messages, they begin sending each other lists of questions. When you were thinking about questions for, for her, what were some of the things you came up with? They cover all sorts from how do you take your coffee to... Uh, holiday destination, beach or snow or all all sorts of things. Um, one is sticking out, but I don't know whether I want to say it, like your death row meal. That was a random question. That definitely was not my question. This goes on for a bit, and then they take a big step. They arrange a Skype call. I wouldn't say I was really that drunk, but I was definitely soft around the edges. And it, without that, I don't think I could have made the call. It was really nice. She was going off to work. I had just come back from the night out um, at a friend. I was at a friend's for dinner and uh, it was quite brief. I want to say it was only about 15, 20 minutes we maybe chatted for. Georgie tells herself that this thing with Brit is still very low stakes. There's an ocean between them, after all. She still figures they'll never actually meet each other. But inside, she feels something different. One weekend, I hadn't heard from her. And I, I was I was absolutely gutted. And I thought, oh. And then I got worried because I thought, wow, I'm much more invested in this than I realized. Eventually, Brit and Georgie start talking about meeting in person. Georgie decides to fly to Boston at the end of a long trip abroad for work. A trip that takes her across the Trans-Mongolian Railway to Beijing. I travel quite a lot for work and it still sits there as just the worst flight of my life. Because I was doing fine until I was over Ireland somewhere. And I remember looking out the window and I just realised what I was doing. And I think, I remember it vividly because I don't think up until any point had I realised exactly what I was doing. I'd got on a plane 
to go and meet a perfect stranger and spend seven days in Boston. What on earth was I thinking? Like literally, of all the things I'd ever done, this had to be the craziest. We'll be right back after the break. So Georgie lands in Boston. Her heart is racing as she gets off the plane toward that waiting area for arrivals. As you come through an airport, you never really know which door eventually leads you to arrivals. So every single door I went through, I kind of thought, oh God, is this going to be arrivals? And then I kind of thought Boston would be quite small because I was a bit paranoid. What if we don't recognize each other? What if I can't find her? I was waiting for her, waiting for her, waiting for her. And this is Brit. And I happened to um, be standing next to a, a defibrillator. And I thought, well, this is perfect in case my heart stops. I'm right here next to the defibrillator. Up to this point, Britt hasn't had much luck with dating. She's living in her friend's attic with her deaf cat. Her subway busking days are basically over because she's now working as a nurse on the night shift. But she's still posting videos of herself playing on Facebook and YouTube. The night she goes to the airport to pick up Georgie for the first time, it's raining. And I remember she, I spotted her and she came and found me and uh, um, gave me a hug and a kiss. I just felt like I was home. Even though I was in Boston and Boston was my home, I just felt like being with Georgie, I was, I was finally home. And it just felt right. And I had exactly the same feeling. I felt like I'd just come home. I always say that I'm a practical dreamer. So nothing about this was practical or it seemed practical to me, but I thought I, I just wanted to do something different. I guess this maybe worked out well for me because I'm very shy. I'm, I'm not very social. So this was a really, really good way for me to quietly and slowly get to know somebody by taking a chance of allowing my, my heart to be open to this person that I had never met. This first visit in Boston goes well. For the next three years, they maintain a long-distance relationship. They take turns visiting each other every six to eight weeks. We did a lot of lot of flights, and it cost a lot of money. I, uh, I call it the expensive hobby. <laughs> then, on one special trip to London, Britt proposes. Georgie says yes. After a lot of red tape, Britt finally gets approval to work as a nurse in the UK and she moves over. They live in London first, and then they decide to buy this boat and move out of the city. So now we live in the countryside on a historic Dutch barge, and we are about to celebrate our seven-year wedding anniversary. So Britt and Georgie have this lovely marriage, I picture them waking up every morning on a gorgeous misty river and drinking coffee, maybe wearing warm cable-knit sweaters, their dog curled up at their feet. But when you get down to it, this whole story stems from one seemingly unimportant moment, one risk that seemed like the lowest of stakes. Georgie liked Britt's video, and she bothered to send a message. That's it. That small move was actually huge. That leap brought Georgie to the love of her life, how easy it could have been for her to just say, uh, oh, this video is okay, but 
That's all. Not to be overly romantic about all of this, but acting on instinct, on that spark of intuition, can really pay off. Doing nothing gets you nothing. If you don't express a feeling, no one knows you've had it. When people meet, like capital M, meet, it's often because someone has swallowed their fear and anxiety and just seized a moment. If you were giving advice to someone who was afraid to seize the moment, to tell someone how they feel, if they feel like, oh, they would never be interested in me, or, oh, I don't want to bother them, what advice would you give? Just be brave. I feel like, as everyone says, life is very short. And I also think, what is the worst that can happen? Horrible embarrassment and rejection. <laughs> well, I guess I guess from my perspective, or from me as a person, I've often had to do things that haven't made me feel very comfortable but I've always tried to say yes and I've just always tried to put myself in positions that aren't comfortable and I think if you really want something whatever's going to be good is probably not going to be easy. But what if your worst fear in seizing a moment is that it will work that you'll get the thing you wanted and then you're confronted with all of these anxieties and pressures about the future and how this relationship might work or what if it fails or Forget all that, Georgie says. Initially with her and Brit, she says, they just took it slow. They didn't need an endgame. It was a really nice experience of being present, and I think that is missing hugely from perhaps all our lives. If you imagine a five-year-old, most five-year-olds don't have any qualms about going up and saying hello to people or making friends. And then as we become older, this fear sets in and we close down and, and all of that lovely openness um, starts to diminish. And I think that's a real shame. So perhaps find your inner five-year-old. That would be my advice. I think the most important thing is just take time to say hello to somebody. And what didn't put me off with Georgie saying hello is that it was very genuine. So um, yeah, I, I just think if you just take time to say hello, then you can start a conversation. You don't know where it will go from there. That story makes me think of all of the excuses I've made to avoid seizing moments. Like with that guy, Matt Dorfman, in college I was telling you about. Back then, I had a million excuses for why I wasn't talking to Matt Dorfman and instead was just sitting behind him like a total creep. But hiding from him at parties or pretending I didn't see him didn't make anything happen. I'd get texts from my friend Aileen after college about how Matt Dorfman was doing. I heard he got married to someone really great. One day, I was telling our producer, Amy, this story about Matt Dorfman, and her eyes got all big, and she was like, do you think he talked to us? It would be interesting to find out whether the Matt Dorfman of reality matches the one you fell in love with in your head. And I was like, no, we are not calling Matt Dorfman. And let me tell you why. Matt Dorfman is married now. He is a grown-up professional. Matt's actually the art director for the book section at the New York Times. He's a complicated person to Google, so I don't even know what he looks like now. Because if you search him, all of his illustrations come up. But because Amy is excited and pushy, I text Aileen. I figure Matt can just say no, and then we can move on with our lives. But Aileen writes back pretty quickly and is like, Matt Dorfman would be happy to talk to you about the fact that you had a crush on him 20 years ago. So on one afternoon, we get into the studio, and Amy calls Matt Dorfman. 
and puts me on the line. And holy shit, it's happening. Hi, Matt. <laughs> it's Meredith. Oh, hi. Hi. Meredith? Oh, hi. <laughs> I, didn't hear, I didn't hear you speak for a minute. Matt asked me to turn my phone down. <laughs> I, I I've just know. been quiet. I didn't know if I was like supposed to say hello. <laughs> oh, my God. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. You know, just, just a regular Monday. Just a regular Monday. Before we, before we do this. <laughs> oh, okay. So thank you. I might need, no, of course. I understand this is very cringy to listen to, but imagine being me. It's even cringier. But let's soldier on. My first thought is, does he even remember any of this? I took a film class at night, and it was the history of horror films. And my memory was that that was the class that you were in. Did you take that class? It was a nighttime film class. I remember, I definitely took a, I took a film history class. I can't remember if it was specifically a horror movie class or not. So I remember you being in this class, and from my memory, it was, I mean, this is a long time ago now, but it was like, you know, a little bit of stadium seating, right, so that we could see the screen. Oh, yeah, sure. And you would come in, and you would sit, and you, you would draw. And, <laughs> Sounds about right. And not totally be big. Like, you were half engaged, maybe, with what was happening, but also you were, whether you were just doing it without thinking, you would illustrate things. You would draw. And I would sit, like, behind, <laughs> I would sit behind you so that I could <laughs> see what you were drawing. Oh, God. I know. I'm not, embarrassing. I would sit behind you and I would draw. Sometimes I, like, I'm, I can't really illustrate well at all. Like, I'm a stick figure kind of person, but I would draw sometimes you drawing the thing. I mean, if only I I know. I'm not, I'm not proud. Wait, totally selfish question. No, I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm more embarrassed for, trust me, I'm plenty embarrassed for me. Did I draw anything perverse? No. I can't remember. No, I mean, sometimes it was like a little bit like disturbing, but not like in a, it wasn't, it wasn't like boobs. It was like, it was like maybe a monster sometimes. But for the most part, I don't remember being like, no, clearly, clearly I liked it. (laughs) So now I need to get down to business. I want to figure out who I would have found by seizing the moment back in college. I mean, had I just worked up the courage as a 20-year-old to figure out who Matt Dorfman was, would I have liked him? Matt indulges me and says he's happy to let me know whether my dream Dorfman would have matched reality. So I think one of the goals is to find out, like, whatever the Matt Dorfman I I wrote in my brain at 20, like, is, is it even true, right? I remember you had dark hair. Uh, that's that's true. In my mind, you were not interested in the fact that we were at a Division One sports school. Uh, no, I could not have cared less. Okay. In my mind, you... I keep quizzing him. Like, Turns oh, out my gut was right about Matt Dorfman. Not about everything. We wouldn't have been a perfect match. And to be honest, I don't know that I would have been ready for perfect Matt Dorfman when I was 20. But he would have been worth talking to. And even if he hadn't have felt the same way... He would have been nice to me. Since I've been asking people how they met all season, I asked Matt to tell me how he found his wife. The only reason that my wife and I are together is because she asked me out. 
Like, I don't, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have had the, the nerve or even the, the sense of myself to know that she was interested in me. Had she not, had she not made like a, a, a fairly demonstrative gesture. My real takeaway from talking to him beyond just general shame and the fact that my producer is a total masochist is that moments come and go. We should do something about them while we're in them. I know that now. Oh, one last thing. Matt Dorfman was happy to take this phone call on a podcast because he's a podcast kind of guy. He designed the logo for a little podcast you might know of. It's called Serial. Because of course he did. I want to curl up into a ball now and just like... <laughs> It was it was great to catch up. It was ever. great to catch up too. And maybe at some point I'll see you like a normal person in New York, and I will actually say hello. No, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Let me know. Drop in. So now that you have come with me on this journey of humiliation, you're welcome. By the way, let me reiterate: take your chances when you have them. Remember that not all moves have to be monumental ones. Sometimes it's just about expressing a little interest and saying hello. You never know what might happen next. As Georgie taught me, be that brave chicken. Next time on Love Letters. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. The podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Amy Padula. Audio mixing, sound design, and mastering by Ned Porter. Music by APM. Our executive producers are Scott Hellman and Janice Page. Special thanks to Linda Henry and Brian McGrory. We want to hear your stories of dating and meeting people and about your Matt Dorfmans. Email us at loveletters@boston.com or tweet at us using the hashtag loveletterspodcast. On the next episode, we'll dig deeper into this idea Aaron and I tried, that signing up for classes and activities is a good way to meet someone. Be sure to subscribe to Love Letters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. And remember, your Matt Dorfman might not want a phone call, so maybe don't try this at home. <laughs> <laughs>